Amen. Well, if you don't know me, Steve, introduce me briefly. My name is Johnny Artavanis. I help oversee, alongside the Zamoraz brothers, the Newhall Bible Study. I am the Dean of Campus Life at the Master's University. I have a wife named Katie. She's back. And then one baby named Lily. She's five months old. She's the best. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 5, and then we'll get started. Matthew 5. Dr. Hughes tells the story in 1982 that the LA Times carried the story of Anna Mae Penica. She is a 62-year-old lady who had been blind from birth. At 47 years old, Anna Mae married a man she met in her Braille class, and for 15 years, her husband did the seeing for both of them until he totally lost his vision as well to retinitis pigmentosa. So both of them are now absolutely blind. Anna Mae had never seen any of the faces of those she loved most, none of the colors of the food that she ate, nor the clouds in the sky. An entire life in complete darkness. Then, in October of 1981, Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jewel Stein Eye Institute at UCLA performed a surgery to remove the rare congenital cataracts from Anna May's eyes. And for the first time, Anna May could see. She was 62 years old. The article tells us that Anna May was amazed at how much bigger and brighter everything was. She would later recall in her journal that some people were skinnier than I anticipated. Some people were bigger than I anticipated. Just some were fatter, some were larger, some were this, some were that. Anna May says, since I've received my sight, I can hardly wait to wake up in the morning to splash water on my face and to put on my glasses and enjoy the changing morning light. Her vision is now 2030, the article says, good enough to pass a driver's test. Think about how, how wonderful this would have been to see the faces that you had only felt with your hands your entire life to see the waves that you had only heard crash growing up on the beach, sunsets you had only dreamed of. Can you imagine living your entire life in total darkness and finally receiving the gift of sight? The eyes are so fundamental to our senses and how we behold, communicate, and comprehend. The gift of receiving your sight can hardly be described. But today in the scripture, the Bible is going to speak of a more wonderful type of sight than even that which Anna Mae Penica experienced. Look at Matthew 5, 8 with me. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I have a question for you this morning, whether you've grown up in the church or whether this is the first time you've ever been in one. Are you pure in heart? And do you long to see God? We're in the Beatitudes and we're looking at the most famous sermon given by the most famous preacher, by the most famous person in the entire world. And in this sermon, Jesus is addressing his followers and he's preaching this sermon in the context of religious pharisaical externalism. 
to Pharisees who would honor God with their manners, their behavior, their dress, but did not follow or love God from the heart. Jesus will later tell them that you tithe mint and rue. He's basically saying you take a piece of cilantro and go, this is for you, God. But Matthew 15, 8, your hearts are far from me. Matthew 23, 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus is never pulling any punches when he addresses this crowd, and he's getting after something here that's easily missed. Now we're going to look specifically at verse 8, but I want to look with you at verses 3 through 8 so we can see the progression. And I'll go briefly through those first few. These are a list of spiritual birthmarks that Jesus gives his followers. He's not telling them what they have to do in order to become a Christian. He's telling them how they live and how they are identified because they are. And one of the words we're going to see over and over again throughout this section is the word blessed. Now, what does this word mean? If you've grown up in the church, maybe you've heard this word used synonymously with the word happy, and there's truth in that. But when we think of happiness, we typically think of an internal subjective state rather than the objective state of the way that God views us. To be blessed is a covenantal word. It means to be counted amongst the promises of God. So when Jesus is going to say, blessed are you, it's predominantly in relationship to how God views us. And there is an English word that fits or accommodates a translation of blessed in addition to happiness. And that English word is congratulations. From God's perspective to man, congratulations. These are the ones that God, your creator, defines as blessed. Even though many people, even in the church today, buy into the Beatitudes and the blessings of the world. What are those? The world says, blessed are the wealthy. They can buy whatever they want. Blessed are the aggressive. The early bird gets the raise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for notoriety. They'll get noticed. Blessed are the sexually liberated. Their body, their choice. Blessed are the scheming, the hustlers, the grinders. But the one-liners here that Jesus is going to give are radically different from the Beatitudes of the world. Let me go briefly through the first few before we land on verse 8. Verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, they, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When Jesus speaks of poor in spirit, when he's speaking of this poverty, he's not a total dependence upon God. You remember the prodigal in Luke 15? It says that when he came to the end of what? Himself. When he came to his senses, that is poor in spirit. When you come to the end of your Self, and you realize there was not nothing in me to earn God's favor, and there is nothing in you to live a single moment of faithfulness to God outside of an alien power. You cannot do it in of yourself, and that's why we sing, Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling, but that's not a, just a salvific reality. That's a progressive reality in your life. You can do nothing apart from the gospel. And Jesus says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Verse 4 Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. A confession of our need for grace in verse three leads us to a contrition and brokenness over our sin. 
When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's not talking about an Eeyore perspective on life where you just are pessimistic constantly because we're also told to rejoice how often? Always. So what does he mean here when he says, blessed are those who mourn? He's saying, blessed are those who truly mourn and are disgusted over their sin. And so we can take the examination ourselves. Do you mourn over your sin? Do you mourn over your sin? Well, then listen to the words of Jesus Christ. Congratulations. Happy. Good on you. You're blessed. Why? Because the God who cannot lie promises, verse four, to comfort you. Verse five, blessed are those who are gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Or blessed are the meek, maybe some translations would say. Now, when we think of meek, uh, we're not talking about a spineless hanging of the shoulders. Yeah, man, that just gets ran over all the time. We're not talking about something that is antithetical to strength. When the Bible speaks of meekness, it's talking about a combination of patience, humility, and a kindness and a resolve to live in submission to the word of God. The meek person has no desire to be dignified. There's no desire for recognition. And Jesus looks at his followers and says, congratulations to the meek. Why? Because they will inherit the earth. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They long for true satisfaction. This is the heartbeat of a Christian. God, I want to be like you. I want to be freed from sin. One Puritan writer says that the world believes thou shall not is written across every single pleasure and thou shall is written across every single misery. The world says, if you want to live, come to me. Bask in sin, enjoy every temptation, drink your cup full of indulgence. And Jesus is going to say, if you actually want to live, come to me, bask in a better, pros- a better promise, enjoy my presence, and you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Two considerations and then one question for you regarding verse seven. Two considerations first. Number one, you have received more mercy from God than you have ever extended to anybody else. And if you don't believe that, you don't understand the gospel. And if you do believe that, can you say amen? Amen. Number two, you have grieved God more than anyone else has ever grieved you. Sin doesn't just anger God. It deeply grieves him. Now a question. Would you like God's memory of your sin to be as long as your memory of other people's sin towards you? Jesus says, congratulations to the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Because it's evidence that they have tasted and received mercy themselves. Now, we come to verse eight, and this is where we'll focus the remainder of our time. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What's the irony of this? 
The irony of this is that we live in a world where holiness of life is inseparable from misery. Holiness of life is synonymously interpreted with a confined, restricted, suppressed life. But Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for you and you alone shall see God. We're gonna look at three observations regarding purity in heart this morning. First, it's nature. Second, it's promise. And third, it's pursuit. But first, it's nature. What's the nature of a pure heart? Jesus, if you've read the Bible, is constantly going after people at the heart level. He's not looking for reformed behavior. He's not looking for rinsed manners. He's not looking for renovated externals. He's constantly going after people at the heart level. And the question is why? Well, the reason is, well, look at your phones. What's wrong with the world today? The problem with the world today is the problem of the human heart. You are not fundamentally what other people observe you to be. You are not fundamentally what other people believe you to be. You are fundamentally what you are in your heart. And your heart is the you that God knows. In John 2.25, I love this passage. Jesus is consumed with zeal for the glory of God. He turns water into wine. And there's a scene at the end of John 2 where it says, Jesus doesn't need anyone to testify concerning man because he already knows what is within man. How does he, how does he know that? Well, it's because Jesus is looking at the heart. This is what he knows, and this is what he cares about. It's not those who have clean manners and polished behaviors that ascend the hill of the Lord, but who? Those who have clean hands and a pure what? Heart. God knows you at the heart level because your heart is your entire person. I remember my dad instructing me in this when I was a boy. Johnny, your heart involves four things. It involves your mind, Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. It involves, secondly, your emotions, John 14, 1, do not be troubled in your what? Hearts. It involves third, your will, Daniel 1.8. I love this passage. It says, Daniel purposed in his heart. He resolved. He was determined. It involves out of the heart, the mouth speaks, because out of your heart, your entire life is lived. And this is why Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Christ is always going after people at the deepest level. And one of the things we must consider first is that the natural heart is impure. Turn with me to Matthew 15 for just a moment and keep your finger in Matthew 5. Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus is saying, The natural heart is impure and there is nothing that the natural man can do to change his impure heart. And this is why Jeremiah is going to ask the question, can an Ethiopian change his skin? What's the answer? No. Can the leopard change his spots? What's the answer? No. And neither can you or anybody else for that matter change their own heart. So how is one made pure in heart? This is important for us. 
Jesus is addressing his followers, and so we'll cover this first idea briefly. How is one made pure in heart? Well, purity of heart begins principally and positionally the moment we are saved, at the moment of regeneration. The Spirit does a miracle, Ezekiel 36, 26, and you guys know this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So it begins principally, positionally, the moment you are saved, you receive a pure heart before God, justified, declared righteous. But then progressively, we become increasingly pure until we meet Christ face to face. This is why David is described as a man after God's own what? because it was the pursuit of his life. To be pure in heart means to be cleansed by God, but it means more than just to be cleansed. Wheat, when it was separated from chaff, chaff would be katharizo, which means not only cleansed, but it would mean unmixed. Um, my grandpa went to be with the Lord when I was in college. He was a first-generation Greek immigrant, just the man. Um, he worked at the Cadillac dealership in Santa Monica most of his life, and he was always saying the same things. San Antonio Spurs are the best basketball team. <laughs> Johnny put Tabasco on everything, you know, and uh, always had like a little miniature bottle of Tabasco. He'd pull it out of his coat. Um, somehow we had spaghetti every meal. Um, and third, he would say, Johnny, Greeks wear gold. And uh, I go, okay, okay. So he would explain to me the gold refining process. And he would tell us that you, you put gold through a refining process and anything that's unclean uh, is removed. You get slag and then that gets take to, you know, taken away. But what makes gold pure is not just when it's cleansed. What makes gold pure is when you only have one substance remaining. Gold. And when Jesus speaks of purity, he's not just talking about a removal of the slag. He's talking about the substance of our life being unmixed, undivided, and whole. The idea of purity means that our life is singularly focused. No divisions, no distractions, but whole devotions. Our motives, thoughts, conscience surrendered and submitted to God free from any deceit and disguising. Do you live a disguised life? Soren Kierkegaard, who is a little bit of an interesting guy, but wrote a book on purity and heart. And the name of that book is Purity and Heart, which means to will one thing. And I like that definition and I like that title because this is what God is after in the hearts of his followers, to will one thing. God cares about purity in heart so much amongst his people. He does not tolerate alternative lovers. You know the key word in the book of Hosea used 20 times? Whoredom. Which means divided in affection. And this is what Jesus goes after. God doesn't tolerate spiritual looseness. This is why those who have been redeemed... In Ezekiel 24, they receive a new heart that will fear God forever. To be pure in heart means to pray with the psalmist in Psalm 86. Oh God, unite my heart to fear your name. Make it one, make it whole, make it undivided, unified, clean from any adhesion 
or anything that corrupts and pollutes, how do I know if my heart is pure? How do I know if I'm one who has been positionally made right with God? And how can I even ascertain the depth and degree in which I'm progressively becoming pure in heart? Take this quick examination before we move on to point number two. Number one, do you truly hate sin? Do you abhor sin? The wicked cater to their lust. They make provision to feed their lust. They project and plan how they will bring their lusts about. But the pure in heart, they hate sin. Number two, do you delight in holiness? Do you delight in holiness? Do you begrudgingly comply with Christian principles? Or do do you delight to honor God? Do you obey not just because you ought to, but because you want to? Number three, do you have a large spiritual appetite? One of the surest ways to ascertain how God is moving in an individual is how much they hunger for the truth of God's word and his people. Number four, are, are the smiles and frowns of God of greater significance to you than the smiles and frowns of the world? Are you grieved by what grieves God? And do you find much joy in what brings God joy? Let's look secondly at purity's promise. So first, purity's nature. Now secondly, purity's promise. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. What does it mean to see God? You know, I've grown up in an environment where I think so many messages towards young people warn them of the dangers of impurity. And this is true and wonderful and needed. I remember memorizing as a young boy, Proverbs 7, the fool that walks by the window of her house, the naivety, the complacency of the fool. I'm always struck by the reality that it's not someone who just kicks open the door of a brothel one day and says, I don't care. No one falls into sin. They slide, meander, peruse, and dabble. And then it's the waywardness of the fool that destroys him. I understood this well growing up, the dangers of impurity. But I have a question for you fathers. I have a question for you older men who are called to instruct the younger men. I have a question for you older women that are called to instruct the younger women. Have you ever grabbed your sons or your daughters by the shoulders and said, son, there is a rich, wonderful promise extended to those who are pure in heart. Don't just ruin their life. You understand this? The promise of purity, it's not just speaking sexually, but I think it's fitting here. The promise of purity is son, young man, young woman, you will see God. You will see him. One day we will see Jesus face to face. First John 3, 2 says that we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. But what does this verse mean for you and I now who no longer have Jesus walking and living amongst us? This verse spoken 2,000 years ago is wonderful and applicable for us today because the verb to see is a future continuous tense verb, meaning it would literally read, if you translated it literally, they, all believers, will be continually seeing God for themselves. This is a future tense. There is a future tense in glory, but there is a present tense right now already started reality and already and not yet to seeing God. And Jesus refers here mainly, I believe, to the seeing that takes place through the eyes of faith. Jonathan Edwards says this, there is a more perfect way of perception than the eyes of our body. And here, Jesus is revealing to us the eye of the soul is vastly more perfect than the eye of the body. 
they offer more satisfaction, more enjoyment, more pleasure, more wonder than anything the physical eye could behold. Now, you and I are made in the image of God. But the greatest delight then, and I want you to think with me, the greatest delight that God extends to those who are made in his image are not physical pleasures. The greatest delight that God extends to those who are made in his image are, is something that we share with God. It's intellectual pleasure. It's contemplating and considering and meditating upon God. We share something with him that serves as the catalyst for supreme pleasure, and that is our minds. The world has been stupefied. But Jesus says, blessed are those who see God. And it's not seeing through our eyes. It's seeing through our mind, seeing through the eyes of faith. All believers like Anna Mae Penica have had their blindness removed. But not all believers live with the same level of clarity and vibrancy in their vision of God. The scales hindering their eyes may have been removed, but many fail to put their glasses on or fail to increase their vision so that they might see Christ more clearly. And I'll explain this, but Spurgeon used to speak of those who have been granted access into the sea of all that is Christ. And he said that many people, even though the ocean is available to them, are content to wade and waddle ankle deep in their knowledge and intimacy with Jesus Christ. Yes, everyone Christ has justified, he will sanctify, and yes, have equal standing before God due to our justification, but not everyone experiences the same richness and the same satisfaction and same pleasure that comes from seeing Christ more fully. This is why Paul prays for the Ephesian church, that the eyes of your heart may be what? Enlightened that you may know the hope you have, this glorious inheritance we have, this tremendous power we have in the spirit. He's saying, my prayer for you is that you would see more of Christ, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would begin to understand that when you sing this, the power of the cross, it becomes wonderful. So when you sing amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It's not just a melody. It's not just a rhyme. It is the overflowing of your heart. And that's why Paul prays, oh God, please do something wonderful for the Ephesian church. Do something wonderful for my own life. Enlighten the eyes of my heart so I might see you more clearly. What is Satan's chief strategy in the world? It says in 2 Corinthians 4, I'm glad there's no really ambiguity here. You know exactly what Satan's chief strategy in the world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The way he works is to blind the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And you may have had your blindness removed, but he is content to have your blindness removed as long as he keeps you by idleness or indulgence, doubt or distraction from seeing all that there is in Christ. As a believer, you are no longer under Satan's reign, but you are still vulnerable to his schemes. What are the schemes of Satan? Well, it's actually the same thing 
that he schemes towards an unbeliever. Yes, he's the accuser, but the way that Satan is scheming in your life is to do anything to prevent you from seeing Christ more fully. It says that he wants to blind the minds of the unbelieving from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he wants in your life. It's for everything that you sing to just be a rhythm or a rhyme and never just the worship of your heart. To keep you from driving in the car and just going, God, you are awesome to me. Unbelievers don't see God. In Matthew 13, 13, it says, seeing they don't see. You know what that means? They don't get it. What's the deal? Why are we here this morning? If you're an unbeliever here this morning, maybe you don't even know if you are. One of the ways that you can maybe determine that in your own heart is that if you go, what's the point? Why is everyone gathered? They don't get it. They may even assent to truths regarding the nature of God, but they don't really see him. There are some who by nature of upbringing and training can affirm that God is glorious and wonderful And they can say, isn't he lovely with their mouth? But with the eyes of their heart, they've never seen God. There are others who have been educated in the truth, can declare the panoply of the attributes of God, and yet with the eyes of their heart have never seen him. They've never said, this is so wonderful to me. What does it mean to see God? Two things, and then we'll move on to our third and final point. To see God means, number one, to be admitted into his presence. When I was, I was about to say when I was younger, it, it's a kind of an ongoing reality. I, I'm always at the doctor. I, I keep on breaking my body. Um, I have like shoulder surgeries every six months. I'm due. Uh, I just jinxed it. Um, and when I go to the doctor, like, Johnny, how's it going? How's Katie? You know, like, you're like, oh, hey, doc, you know. I catch up with them, and I'm waiting in the waiting room, and then they'll come and say, hey, the doctor will what? see you now. And it's not that I'm going to go into the office and I'm your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn or settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your right hand will hold me. It'll hold me fast everywhere. Even if the darkness surrounds me, you're there, you're there, you're there. But it is one thing to affirm the omnipresence of God. It is another to sense it as your closest comfort. And the difference is seeing God. You can affirm God's omnipresence and not be thrilled by it. Secondly, not only does it mean to be admitted into his presence, it means to apprehend God's awesomeness and beauty. One of the key passages for me that I feel like no one ever, I'd never heard taught on, but became so pivotal in my own life growing up in the church and even just a bit of my own testimony. My, My dad's a pastor, I knew the truth at a young age. Um, But these were words that were pivotal for me. After college, I'm working in finance in Nashville, Tennessee, and I read these words, and I'd read them, I'm sure, a number of times. But John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Do you know what that means? It means that to the obedient person, there is a gradual and progressive nature 
in which God reveals and discloses and manifests himself. And I grew up and I'm looking around going, man, I can't, I I really want to believe and feel the things I see. And sometimes in a truth-saturated context, we think that there is a lack of thrill from knowing God, you know, because we can look at a world who's gone to the other side of the spectrum emotionally and go truth, truth, truth. But if you look at the scripture, the truth fuels thrill. It fuels emotion. That's why the psalmist doesn't say believe and affirm that God is good. He says taste and what? See. Because there should be a, even regardless of personality. I mean, you think about David. He is a warrior king. He beheads giants, kills lions with his bare hands. And he's writing the psalm saying, this is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. It means to go, God, you are awesome. Edward says, to see God as this, it is to have an immediate, sensible, and certain understanding of God's glorious excellency and love. When we dwell here, we dwell at the fountain and spring of pleasure. The manufacturing plant of pleasure is seeing God. The love of God is the most suitable entertainment for the soul, he says. The greatest pleasure God has given to you is to see him through the eyes of faith And we can consider this and know that what makes heaven heaven is a full recognition of the awesomeness of God. It's to apprehend this. So question, have you you ever truly been struck by God's awesomeness? To wonder that his power that guides the universe is the same power that guides and orchestrates your entire life have you ever considered with David, I was in preaching up north in the mountains last week, and I'm looking out at the stars, and I think of Psalm 8, oh, Lord, when I look at the heavens, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and that you care about him? And then to read in scripture, or what we sang this morning, how deep the Father's love, God, you're not just mindful of me, you don't just know I exist, I'm not just a blip on the radar, I'm not just a number, you know my name, John 10 says, and you know me. And yet, God, even though you know me, I pray, search me and know me even more fully. Have you ever been struck by this? Do your children know that this thrills you? To be struck by his sovereignty that orchestrates kings and kingdoms currently, but also the hairs on your head. To feel the love that Romans 5, 5 says, that the Holy Spirit has poured the love of God into your hearts. There is a difference between affirming something to be true and believing something. Seeing God is the difference. Solomon, I'm teaching through Ecclesiastes in our New Hall, New Hall Bible study. Solomon has everything money could buy. And he'll say in Ecclesiastes 1.8, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. But Jesus says there is a type of seeing that truly truly satisfies. It is the seeing of God. Solomon will declare, all is vanity because all earthly enjoyments are sandy in their foundation. But Jesus looks at us and he grabs us and says, this is an enjoyment, a pleasure that is not sandy. It's built on a firm foundation. Not all is vanity because you can see God 
this enjoyment starts now and it lasts forever. What's the fruit of seeing God? Well, the more we see God, the more we commune with God. And the more we commune with God, the more we long for God. William Perkins says this, the most basic mark of grace is that you long for more of God. If you can't say that, you're either in sin or you're not a Christian. The reward of purity is the fuel of its continued pursuit. It's a vicious cycle. The more we see God, the more we hate our sin. The more we hate our sin, the more we're grateful for the love of God, the more we're grateful for the love of God, because that's where it starts, right? We love because he first what? Loved us. So every time you pray, God, help me to love you more, that's a fitting prayer. But biblically speaking, you will only love God more as you consider and contemplate his love for you. That's why Jesus doesn't say, now abide in your love for me. He says, abide in what? My love for you. And so to see God, the the reward of it, is that we begin to see God in everything, every trial, every difficulty, every detail of our life, every opportunity in nature and every past leading of his providence. The more we see God, the more we will long for the day when we'll see him face to face. But if your goal isn't to see God more clearly, even your attempts to resist sin will feel like a refusal to violate a principle rather than refusing to grieve your friend and father. If you don't see God, the moments resisting temptation will feel like a fish out of water. Navy SEALs can hold their breath for four minutes, but resisting sin shouldn't feel like suffocation. It should feel like breathing. It should feel like real air, true satisfaction. It should feel like up in where I was maybe held up Uh, growing up in the church. If it's God's sovereignty that sanctifies me, but also I'm told this, how do those things work? How can I seek more purity in heart? Or is that just something God gives me? Is it something I pray? And I think biblically, the easiest way to look at this is, though it be God's grace and God's work to give it, it is truly your work to obtain it. Everything that God gives to us via command, he works through us by grace. And that's why Margaret Clarkson, I think, says, I love it. She says, God's commandments are his enablings, meaning that he enables us to pursue and to strive through his power, through his grace, everything that he has commanded. I mean, think with me at James 4.8. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. That's something we do. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's a spirit-empowered sweat to pursuing God. This is why Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and then it's not a period. It says, for it is God who works, what? In and through you. It's never emphasizing one or the other. It is a miracle God works in and through us as we seek him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not only is God the one who gives us a new heart, but maybe you've never noticed in Ezekiel 18.31, it says, cast away all of your transgressions where you have transgressed. And it says, and make yourself a new heart. 
and a new spirit. And then God asks his people, why will you die? And yet it is God who gives it. What does this mean? Well, we confess the reality that God's gracious provision in transforming our hearts is never the catalyst for our passivity in pursuing him, but rather it is the provision of confidence in our pursuit. Saying God is sovereign over my purity and heart never disqualifies us from going, God, please help me, help me. And here I'm going to employ the means that you've given to me through the ordinary means of grace and and ignore those. It's always, God, you've commanded this and you've extended this to me. And so, Lord, I know that you can enable me to do it as a rely on your spirit, your word, and your people. So how do we do this? How can we pursue greater purity and consequently greater vision of God? Well, just five brief things, and you can just jot these down. These are just the ordinary means of grace. Number one, we draw near to God's word. God's word being pure itself purifies the impure person who reads it. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 140, it says, your words are very pure. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God is both the MRI that reveals the impurities of your heart, but also the medicine that washes them away. And so the person pursuing purity is going to submit their entire life under the word of God. And as we look to the word of God, what's the real power? Well, we are inevitably reminded of the gospel because as we look to the word, we look to Christ And we see that we can do nothing apart from him. We're reminded of his love for me. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so we saturate our hearts and minds and thinking with the kindness of God, the warnings against impurity, but the rich promises to those who are obedient. So number one, we draw near to God's word. Number two, we walk with the wise. Beaky says, association begets assimilation. I like that. You become like that which you behold and you become like those you befriend. So if you desire purity in heart, the Bible exhorts you to hang with those who are and are pursuing it themselves. Number three, you make no provision for the flesh. Edwards again, many many professing Christians tempt the devil to tempt them by making provision for the flesh they claim to hate. That's good. Many professing Christians tempt the devil to tempt them by making provision for the flesh they claim to hate. What are the things in your life that prevent you from seeing God more clearly? Jesus says, gut them out. It's not worth it. And he says, seeing God is better. Those provisions of fleshly temptation Jesus says, well, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's not worth it for the unbeliever. But then for the believer, if there's anything, there might be even morally neutral things that aren't explicitly sin that prevent you from seeing God more vibrantly, that distract your time. Watching football isn't bad. But if you spend all day watching football on a Sunday, hypothetically, 
and you fail to even gather your family or whatever it might be. They're morally neutral things, but maybe football's godly, so that's a bad point, but you understand what I'm saying. There might be morally neutral things in your life that prevent you from seeing God. And Jesus says, consider those. Number four, pray for purity. I was reading in Genesis in my Bible reading plan, and it just says, Enoch walked with God and was no more. Don't you love that? Have you ever prayed, God, make me like Enoch? Make me cut from one fabric, no division. Someone who walks before you, soul, mind, and strength. God, like a seal upon the wax, I want you to stamp my life. I want to walk with you, God. And I know that you answer prayer, Psalm 119 will tell us, through the word of God. Part of the way that God reveals himself and enables us and strengthens us and comforts us is through the word of God. So praying, God, rid me of impurity while neglecting his word is, is mocking God. Psalm nineteen fourteen, David says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Do you want to know how to pray? You just pray the scripture. Psalm 139, God, put me under trial. Search me and know me. Lead me in the everlasting way. So we draw near to the word. We walk with the wise, number two. We make no provision. We pray for purity, number four. And then number five, I want us to consider we think. Um, We have a thinking faith. Tomorrow's belief is today's unbelief and tomorrow's holiness is today's impurity and you think you conform to that which you enjoy understand that whatever you enjoy is what you become like and there is a difference between scanning the scriptures in the morning i'm just not thinking he's going blessed are the pure in heart they shall see god no i think he's pleading with us and going blessed are the pure in heart you'll see god in the same way he's not saying look at the birds He's saying, look at the birds, think with me. I want you to use your brains. You're made in my image so you possess a mind. And so God says to think upon all of his wonders, all of his character, all of his goodness, the promises he has for you in this life, the promises he has for you in the next, the consequences of disobedience, the rewards to those who obey. Think about the gospel. Think about the love of God. Your heart is prone to wonder, not prone to obedience. And so sometimes we get in here and we sing truth that somehow we think our heart's gonna be naturally calibrated in the middle of the second song of church. That's not the way it works. Your heart is tuned as you yourself think. That's why sometimes you put on worship music on the way to Sunday morning, right? Because it's a different morning. You're not listening to your beats. You're just, okay, Shane and Shane or whatever it might be. Because you think that's magical, but what's happening is you're thinking upon the truth. And if you want to see God, you must contemplate, deeply consider the gospel that we just saying, behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. So you think, unless you see yourself amongst the shrieking crowd crying out, Barabbas, Barabbas, we want Barabbas. You have to see yourself that way. You have to think of the gospel in that way. We sing so much truth that we never consider. Why should I gain from his reward? What does that mean? What reward? Isaiah 53, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. You know what the reward is? God gave his son a love gift. And the love gift is you. The reward is you. 
We sing so much and we read so much and we preach so much and yet sometimes we fail to consider. And in our ever busy, always moving lives, busyness mutes beauty. And sometimes we never pause and think, God, I want to see more. Help me to dwell deeply on your word. To see God means everything you've grown up singing becomes personally and experientially true. Anna Mae Penica found out later on that the surgery she received in 1981 was available to her in the early 1940s. She lived 40 years of her life in unnecessary blindness. The technique for curing spiritual blindness is available to you. So even at Grace Community Church, Jesus has many, many will say, Lord, Lord. And so we know that, I mean, we would be fools to think everyone in here is a Christian, right? So have you ever been made pure in heart? Has God ever done a miracle in your life? Jesus has come to me. I'll give you a new heart. And he never disappoints. And maybe you've received a new heart, but you recognize, I want to see God more. That's the prayer of my own life. Is it not the prayer of your life? Then Jesus bids us to come to the great physician again. If your heart has been changed, yet you no longer want to wade ankle deep in the sea of all that is Christ. Put on your glasses through the spirit of God and the word of God to see God more clearly. Jesus looks at you this morning because the word of God is living and active. And he says, blessed are the pure in heart, you and you alone shall see God. Can I pray for us? God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I'm thinking in 1 Kings 3, you asked Solomon, give me, or give, I'll give you whatever you ask. What do you want? I wonder how many of us would say, oh Lord, give me a pure heart. Because Lord, you are Psalm 73. You are good to those who are clean in heart. And your goodness is manifested to us as we seek you, Lord, and love you. And and Lord, we're just grateful, Lord, for the opportunity to gather as the people of God. Lord, I pray that next year, the desire of my heart is that I would know you and love you and see you more clearly than I do now. I pray that we can, as a fellowship group and as individual Bible studies, can encourage one another and pray for one another. How do we pray for one another? Well, we can pray Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may see the fullness of the glory of the gospel. How do we pray for our sons? Well, we pray that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened. God, that's my prayer. Lord, we're thankful that you love us. We're thankful for the truth that we sang this morning. Jesus, thank you. We're thankful that you love our souls and that we're known by God.
We commit the rest of this day to you. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. You are dismissed.